Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Our guest today is Yale historian Beverly Gage, an expert in 20th century U.S. history, including the presidency. Today we'll talk about history in the making, the 2012 presidential election now just three weeks away. As always, we'll ask some of your questions. Beverly, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. So we're three weeks away, three weeks from today. What's on your mind? What are you thinking about as we approach this election? Well, I think one of the things that stands out to me about this election as a historian is that there are certain elections where, to be frank, the candidates don't really matter, right? Where what happens moment to moment in the campaign, who makes a good speech, how the debate goes, it just doesn't really matter because the election has been decided far and away in advance for a variety of other reasons. And what's been really striking about this campaign is just how much the candidates do matter and how much we really are uncertain three weeks out um, about who's going to make mistakes, about what the final narrative is going to be, um, and about how it's all going to shake out. What has contributed to that uncertainty, would you say, especially? Well, I think you've had a number of factors in play. So obviously the economy, which always plays a big role in the elections, has played a, a very significant role here. Um, and I think to some degree, the Republicans' ambivalence about their own candidate, about Mitt mm. Romney, um, I, I personally, along with I think many, many other people, don't think that Romney has run a particularly good campaign. In some ways, it seemed like this might be an election for the Republicans to either win or lose based based on how they campaigned, based on what they put forth, and Romney's had a very shaky time of it. Um, so I think in terms of why is it not a slam dunk for Barack Obama, we can see all sorts of reasons, but many of which have to do with the state of the economy, um, but why Mitt Romney hasn't actually come out and done a better job at pressing all of that home is sort of a, a different set of questions. Now one thing Mitt Romney unquestionably has done well so far is debate. Um, although I suppose you could argue that perhaps the president didn't debate as well as we all expected him to, and, and that made it look better. But uh, we've got the second debate tonight. It's a close race. Debates, how, how often have they proven decisive in uh, presidential history, if ever? I know people often talk about the Kennedy-Nixon debates. Right. Right. Yeah, the Kennedy-Nixon debate is sort of the famous example of a moment when uh, a debate really had an influence. Um, of course, that was a long time ago now, and one of the reasons that it remains the example of the moment when a debate had a real influence is that there haven't really been a lot of debates since then in which you can say the election turned on this moment. Again, I mean, Kennedy-Nixon was a very, very close race. There are people who would argue that actually Richard Nixon, uh, he didn't win the debate, but you know, there are people who would argue that he actually won um, the election. But again, a very, very close election. And so in instances like that, uh, it tends to be a moment when the debate matters. I'd say the other thing that often comes out of debates are memorable one-liners, memorable zingers. You can, in fact, sort of put something to rest, a set of concerns. Uh, you can sort of exceed expectations, not live up to expectations, those sorts of things which can shift the narrative in more subtle ways. Um, but usually it's not a make or break factor, except to the degree that when you're talking about tiny, tiny numbers of voters that need to shift uh, their votes or their ideas, it can matter. One thing we haven't, it doesn't seem we've heard it quite as much about as one might expect given the turmoil in the world in the last few years is foreign policy. And uh, we've got a question from, uh, from uh, a member of the public named Jonathan Algard. He writes in by Twitter to ask, 
why the low focus on foreign policy so far, despite, um, despite the sort of interdependence of foreign policy issues and our economic welfare, uh, and so on and so forth? Right. Well, I think there are a couple of things to note. So foreign policy was actually a pretty substantial part of the vice presidential debate. So I think it did, it did sort of rise up in part because the woman who was doing the questioning was, in fact, a foreign correspondent. But I think in yeah. part because it's not a big area where there are differing opinions at the moment. I mean, for Barack Obama and Mitt Romney to go at it, there are some subtle differences. There are some important differences. Uh, but these are, first of all, not the issues that they believe are going to drive the campaign. Um, and then secondly, you know, they're not issues where um, the differences are quite as stark as you might claim that they are, at least in areas like the economy, in areas like political ideology, those sorts of things. And it's, it's my understanding that, um, that incumbent presidents often find foreign policy kind of dangerous ground, although it would seem that Barack Obama has some uh, pretty important foreign policy victories uh, that he could trumpet, um, and uh, I'm thinking of Osama bin Laden, of course. Right. Um, do you think that he's likely to make a big issue of any of that, or are we really going to stick to the domestic issues that, that American voters are most likely to care about? Right. I think it really depends what their assessment of what's going to move voters is going to be in the, these next three weeks, right? That is all that anybody is doing in yeah. these next three weeks. Um, I think on the bin Laden question, it's a little bit touchy for Obama, right? Because he has to, it is a kind of big symbolic victory. On the other hand, does he want to seem to be kind of riding this and taking advantage of it? Does that open him up to more criticism or not? I think that that's uh, a really an open question at this point. Um, and I do think, however, that one of the things that bin Laden did um, in terms of thinking about narratives is that it did make Obama less vulnerable on foreign policy, mm -hmm. right? So it also made sort of foreign policy questions uh, harder for the Republicans to push as hard as they might have um, and as hard as they did in, say, 2008, in 2004, in, in 2000, I guess, to some degree as well. We're going to take another question. Uh, this one co uh, has come in by email from Michael. Um, Michael asks or points out that, that people often say the USA uh, politics in, in this country is, is too partisan and too divided. Um, and he asks, is it true that our politics now are more divisive uh, and combative than in past eras? Certainly we've had uh, combat in the past, political combat. Um, and, and based on history, when does, when does partisan fighting go from being a productive part of the democratic process to being a destructive force in, in our society? Mm -hmm. Well, that is a question that people have been debating. How much partisanship is good? How much partisanship is too much partisanship, uh, really, since the country's founding? And it is certainly the case. You know, I sort of like to remind students when we have a question about bipartisanship, about partisan rancor and political rhetoric, that you know, there was a civil war. So we are not as divided as we have ever been, right? There have been many more dramatic things that happened. That said, I do think. Um, that what we're seeing right now is not just a shift in the political language, which I think is often the way in which it's, it's talked about, but there have been really important and I think sort of under-recognized shifts in our political institutions and how our parties operate that have happened really since the 1970s that in some ways uh, feed into a structural lack of cooperation that is quite different from what we would have seen um, in the middle of the 20th century. It's quite clear now, as opposed to, say, 50 or 60 years ago, that the parties are largely ideological parties, which is to say that the most 
conservative Democrat is to the left of the most liberal Republican mm. at this point. And that really was not the case, for better or worse, in the 20th century, kind of the middle part of the 20th century. So I think that's So moderates been, have been squeezed out. Well, I don't know. I mean, in part, it is that moderates have been squeezed out. It is simply also that the parties themselves have become more ideologically uniform. So, for instance, um, you know, in the 1950s, for much of the 20th century, really till the civil rights movement, you know, you had a very powerful conservative Southern bloc that was in the Democratic Party. Um, you also had a kind of string of liberal Republicans. It's less of a bloc, uh, but certainly a liberal Republican tradition. And since then, partly as the South has shifted into the Republican Party and has become a, a red area instead of the solid blue area that it was uh, for much of the 20th century, you know, you've seen the, the flavor and the character of the parties change, right, in the sense that they are more ideologically driven, they are less region-based, though, of course, ideology and region sort of go, go hand mm -hmm. in hand in certain ways. So I think there are a lot of structural developments like that that aren't talked about as much. Another one is the use of the primary election, um, which has been around for a long mm -hmm. time, was around for most of the 20th century, but really only gained the currency that it has today, beginning in the 1970s. And uh, primaries are good for any number of reasons, right? And they were uh, sort of brought about as a way to democratize the political process. And when was that? Well, so primaries were sort of a progressive era idea. Um, and so a lot of primaries started in the early 20th century, but it's really in the aftermath of the 1968 Democratic Convention and, um, and other things that happened in the 60s and 70s that you begin to get primaries being really the chief way in which parties Put their candidates forward. as opposed to conventions as opposed to conventions as opposed to some blend of primaries and conventions um, you had a much more mixed process um, and so that tends to drive um, candidates that appeal to the party's base right mm -hmm. which tends to also drive a certain amount of ideological division so i think there are are we living in a, a, a an era of wonderful bipartisan cooperation no um, is it as bad as it has ever been? Probably not that either, but uh, I think the really key thing is that there are a lot of reasons for this that go beyond sort of what people feel in their hearts um, and, and the ways in which we use our political language. I think there are a lot of important structural things to talk about. When you teach uh, about the presidency, are there, are there certain main points that you really want your students to, to leave with? Uh, what is it about the office of the presidency that you like to convey and you think it's important to convey? Well, to some degree, I think what I like to convey are some of the limits on presidential power, which is to say that I often find myself as a historian, um, journalists, even the public as a whole, um, presidents make for very neat and easy narratives, right? You go from this person to this person, you have a struggle, there are two sides, something results, and then you have a single figure in which uh, to, to uh, kind of look at the ways in which political shifts happen. Um, you know, it could be argued that we devote an inordinate amount of attention to our presidential elections as compared to, say, uh, congressional elections to other areas or of Supreme political Court power, Supreme Court justice appointments, or even people who uh, exercise enormous power in the government who are not elected at all. 
Um, so I think it's worth thinking uh, both about some of the limits on the presidency and also at the ways in which uh, the presidency really has changed a tremendous amount over time. People's expectations of what a president is going to do, um, what he is going to be responsible for, um, how they themselves relate to the presidency as an institution, as an office, the level of intimacy that they feel. I think the relationship between president and public and the mm. ways that that's changed over time is pretty pretty interesting as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a time, um, maybe 100 years ago even, or I should say as recently as 100 years ago, when the president didn't really campaign that hard in public for the office. It was considered somewhat unseemly for the president to do so. How did that change? Right. Well, it changed over time, yeah. like most things. Um, but yeah, it was considered, I mean, if you had been around in, say, 1912, which was one of the most interesting, interesting elections election, yeah. in American history, and we're now at the 100th anniversary yeah. of it, so there's a lot of discussion of 1912 yeah. and, and what it means. You actually did see some, uh, some degree of kind of, uh, you know, riding the train around the country, making speeches, I mean, particularly someone like But Theodore Taft Roosevelt. was reluctant to do so. Taft was reluctant to do so. And for many years after that, in fact, it was considered um, unseemly to, for instance, appear at your party's political convention in order to uh, mm. accept the nomination because the conventions were more important. And because if you were there, it meant that you were campaigning and mm. seeking power. And so uh, people like Woodrow Wilson, as he's waiting, waiting, waiting to see if he's going to get the Democratic nomination, you know, he's off playing golf mm. uh, while the convention's going on. Um, so, you know, I think most people look at this and see a shift both in, in public expectations of the president um, and in the technologies of campaigning, a lot of this begins to shift in the 1930s, primarily around uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in part because Roosevelt embraces new technologies, in part because The radio, for example. Radio, right? absolutely. And of course, as television becomes more prominent, as the uh, way of choosing candidates change, all of these have been sort of important shifts over time. Let's talk a little bit about the, um, the difference in the approach that a historian takes towards, well, let's call it the recent past, but nonetheless the past, um, versus, say, political science or journalists who are very much, who I guess they could also study the past, or, but, but are typically focused on the, the, the present and watching things unspool. Well, I'd say the first thing is that historians spend a lot of time talking about, you know, when is something officially history. And by history, we don't mean yesterday, right? What that tends to mean is when do we, A, have sufficient distance on events to begin to take the long view? And that is roughly, say, 30 years. That's often where it kind of falls out. So right now, historians are very interested in the 1970s and 1980s. And there are a handful of people who are doing more recent things. But, you know, I'd say roughly, you think, I don't know, what does this election mean? Ask me in 30 years, and then I will be able to uh, begin to have an answer there. Uh, but the other reason that that's particularly important to historians is that historians like to go to archives. Historians like to go to archives, have papers, be able to tell the inside story based on the record that is left behind. Now, that doesn't mean historians don't uh, crunch numbers or do interviews. They do all of those things as well. But often, particularly when you're talking about government, there's a kind of lag time in when you can find out what was really going on. Um, so a lot of the ways in which historians 
think about um, these sorts of questions and what becomes history are driven by, uh, again, this is particular to government, but not exclusive to government. You know, when are these sources going to open up? When are they going to be available? When can we both have distance and Access. find out what's really going on? Yeah. Exactly. Let's talk about candidates' pedigrees for a second. Um, uh, especially since the first Bush presidency, um, the a number of the main candidates, the ultimate candidates for president, the party's candidates, have had what you might call elite pedigrees. They went to great schools like Yale and Harvard. Why don't we see more populist candidates with bios that are somewhat, biographies that are somewhat more representative of the American electorate? That's a really interesting question. I mean, we should note this is a devastating year for Yale, <laughs> yes. right? So we've got two, two Harvard candidates out there. Um, and, you know, I would say it's not wholly unusual. Unfortunately, overall, uh, Harvard presidents have tended to stack up a little better, in my estimation, than Yale presidents, which is to say, you know, Harvard can claim Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and uh, Yale has Taft. <laughs> Um, and, of course, Clinton and some of the more uh, recent Bush presidencies uh, as well, both Bush presidencies. Um, but I think it is an interesting and important question, I mean, both about sort of why is this happening now, but also sort of how does this change the kinds of uh, ways that people relate to the political system. I mean, it is, as I said, important to note that it's rather unusual to have Right, the populist candidates have always been in the minority, which is to mm -hmm. say when you think particularly about the 20th century, I mean, certainly there's been Lyndon Johnson, we had Harry Truman, though we kind of had Harry Truman by accident. Mm -hmm. We also kind of had Lyndon Johnson by accident. And then uh, you have uh, Richard Nixon probably as um, the most humble candidate elected in his own right. Although he was a Duke graduate, Duke right, Law School. Right, but he nonetheless, I would say, um, both didn't come out of quite the same mm. elite world and was actually someone who was able to channel a kind of resentment against mm -hmm. elites as mm -hmm. part of uh, his presidential personality, his campaign appeal and such. Um, so I think, I mean, I don't have, I suppose, a full explanation as to why this is the case, but I think it deserves a lot more discussion and a lot more scrutiny than it's actually gotten. I mean, both the question of uh, pedigree and access, uh, but also the simple question of wealth. Mm -hmm. um, not that Barack Obama came from wealthy origins, but what does it mean uh, to move in that kind mm -hmm. of elite world through most of your adult life, and how does it shape how you think about the world? I mm -hmm. think those are really important questions. Do Barack Obama and, and Mitt Romney, in your mind, represent obvious, clear political traditions in American history? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I still find Romney a bit hard to pin down mm -hmm. as a candidate. I mean, I suppose he represents a tradition of um, figures trying to position themselves <laughs> properly to appeal to the broadest possible um, electorate. You know, I think it's very clear if you look at someone like Paul Ryan, you can see a sort of ideological tradition that he himself has described himself coming out of, that he talks about the books that he's read, the things that have shaped his conservative worldview, uh, the kinds of ideas that really drive him. And I think he's quite easy to situate in a kind of trajectory of post-war conservative American uh, 
uh, ideas and debates. Um, I think for the presidential candidates, it's a little bit harder. I mean, I, I tend to think of Obama really as much more of a centrist president than many people thought that he was going to be or than many liberals thought that he was going to be when he was elected. But of course, uh, from a conservative perspective, many people don't see that at, at, at all. And so I, I think this kind of gets back to my point about um, having the distance of history, which is to say, let's see how it all turns out, and then we will answer that question in, uh, in, in another 30 years about where they really fit in kind of the big picture of, of American politics at the moment. We have a question coming in uh, uh, by email from Essie. This is a fairly technical question, but take a stab at it. Um, it's actually a very technical question, but we'll give it a shot. Okay. I may or may not be able to do it. <laughs> is, uh, is it, is it true that um, this, this question has to do with um, uh, what everybody now calls, including the president, Obamacare, um, his health reform um, act, is it true that there are present loopholes that give big companies the right to dump their health insurance policies and basically send everyone straight into Obamacare? Um, yeah, you know, I can see where that question's coming yeah. from, actually, because there's a lot of talk about this sort of thing. Yeah. I, but I couldn't tell you the, yeah. the technicalities on, uh, on that particular question. But that, that worry yeah. and that concern is certainly something that you see uh, floating around a lot, but whether or not it has any basis, I just I don't really know. My impulse is that I don't think that it does, but I have not read that giant, Okay, giant something for law. future research. <laughs> um, let's talk about parties uh, again for a second, political parties. Uh, we're essentially a two-party system in this country. I wonder, do you think that assuming adequate, assuming, not adequate, assuming major financial resources, are we likely to see a serious run by a third-party candidate um, in our lifetimes? Well, the role of third parties is very interesting. I mean, so the Republicans are the most successful third, well, really fourth party uh, in terms of their founding, right? And they're the only one that's really lasted, the party of Lincoln, right, which comes into being in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, but those were rather particular circumstances, civil war, slavery, sectional division. Um, so, I mean, in terms of modern American politics, by which I mean the 20th century, there have been real moments where third party and sometimes even fourth party candidates made a pretty significant difference. So we mentioned that we're at the 100th anniversary of the 1912 election. One of the things that made that election so interesting is that there were actually four major serious candidates who each got pretty substantial proportions of the vote. So there was Woodrow Wilson running as a Democrat, um, William Howard Taft, the incumbent president running as the Republican, though he comes in third. And Teddy um, Roosevelt. You have Teddy mm. Roosevelt, who is running on the Progressive Party ticket, and you have Eugene Debs, who is running mm, on the right, Socialist right. Party ticket. Um, in that moment, the Socialists get 6% of the vote. They don't win any electoral votes, but it's a not insubstantial uh, proportion of the vote. Teddy Roosevelt, of course, gets a much more substantial proportion, comes in second, and, and Woodrow Wilson takes that election with a plurality. So I'd say the story of third parties, and you can see this at other moments too, 1948 uh, is another famous four-party election. Mm -hmm. But uh, what they tend to do 
is, first of all, shape the particular election in which they are involved. Uh, they tend not to last. And the other interesting thing is that they tend to be markers of a kind of transitional moment in the structure of the two existing parties. So uh, you look at a moment like 1948, in which you have a progressive party candidate, who is Henry Wallace. Uh, you have Truman as the Democrat. Uh, you have, wait, who's the Republican in 1948? Why am I forgetting? Dewey, Dewey, right? So Dewey is the Republican in 1948. And then you have Strom Thurmond running on a states' rights party um, within sort of a faction of the Democratic Party. But many people look at that and in the long view see that as the beginning of the kind of transition of the white South out of the Democratic Party um, into the Republican Party, and it's a process that takes place over 30 years. Again, a similar story told with George Wallace's candidacies. Um, so I think those are the roles that third parties tend to play. Um, at this point in American politics, you're absolutely right. It would take a, really a tremendous amount of money to start out making a run mm -hmm. at the presidential level. There are, of course, many other levels at which third parties can play a pretty significant role. Um, but so it does seem like in our moment, the most likely scenario is a very, very rich guy mm -hmm. <laughs> deciding he's going to make a go of it for the presidency, someone like Michael Bloomberg or, you know, like Ross Perot, as we saw a couple decades ago. The time's flying by, but I want to I run through um, a few more questions really quickly. Um, voter turnout. 2008 of citizens vote of voting of citizens of voting age in the US something like 64% voted a much higher percentage of registered voters actually cast ballots in brief what does that reflect in your mind about our society are you asking about why more people about why didn't more people vote? don't vote yes uh -huh, i'm sorry uh-huh well i think it uh, you know i think there are a lot of answers to that question and i'm not sure i have the definitive one um, my instinct is that a lot of it has to do with relatively kind of weak political institutions in the United States, which is to say that though people identify with parties, you don't actually see parties having the same kind of intimate local role in people's lives that you did mm -hmm. in the 19th century when you had much more like 80, 85 percent of uh, of Americans voting. I think some of it has to do with class. Some of it has to do with the fact that Election Day is not a federal holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, people are at work, people are busy. So I think there are you know, very practical, technical reasons, and then there are a lot of reasons about political culture, inequality, class structures, political institutions. So that is a non-answer to your question. But. Fair enough. <laughs> we'll take one from uh, Jared, who uh, writes in by live stream. Um, he asks, do the current political trajectories end, and I presume he means in our, in, our, in our country, end in political chaos or some form of revolution, or are they part of some great pendulum swing? And I guess we'll have to sort of define what you think trajectory means in this context. But mm -hmm. Well, what do you think trajectory means in this context? Well, the way things are going. Mm -hmm. That's the way I take it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so revolution, right? This has always been... Um, a persistent question. Um, I think the possibilities for kind of genuine revolutionary action mm. in the United States have always been uh, rather limited in a whole variety of ways. So that maybe is not a, a word that we uh, that we necessarily want to hold on to or choose. It's a very complicated word. Uh, but in terms of where we're going, I mean, I guess I would have to fall back on my role as a historian and say, I, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, we will see what happens mm. uh, with this election. And I think there is really a sense um, 
in many ways that the machinery of government has broken down in significant ways. Mm. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we're actually on the cusp of a period of kind of reform of political institutions, um, which is to say, as we were talking about this question of bipartisanship and the kinds of deadlocks we've been seeing, so much of them have to do with particular structures of the parties at this moment, even the ways that congressional committees tend to work right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if in that limited way, we're on the verge of a real push for some kind of structural change mm. there. Um, there still seems to me on a lot of the biggest questions to be an awful lot of consensus in the United States. Um, and this has always been one of the one of the real tensions of American history. Are we a country of deep conflict or are we a country in which a lot of the big questions have always been pretty settled and the range of political debate is actually quite small. Mm. And um, I think we're at a moment when those questions are coming to the fore again. Any special plans for watching tonight's debate? Uh, no, but I am going to do it. Uh, yeah, my, my husband is a political cartoonist, so he's oh, always very entertaining to watch. So he's often, you know, deep in the minutia and, and, and watching for the moments of humor and entertainment. So will he so. be sketching th uh, No, tonight? he doesn't sketch okay. through it, but he's, but he's an entertaining partner to have on debate night. Good. Well, Beverly Gage, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. And uh, thanks to all of you for watching At Yale Live. I hope that uh, you'll join us again next time. Eric Gershon at Yale Live. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Beverly.